the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, most merciful Father, false teachers and enemies who are hostile to the Christian faith surround us. Keep us true to your word, restore our strength, deliver us from those who speak lying words and perverse things. Preserve us in the peace of Christ, which overcomes the darkness of this present age. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Uh, very briefly, I spoke last week about uh, kind of a to-everyone-and-answer study, which is going to take up First Peter, as well as uh, addressing contemporary issues that are of great concern to Christians. That'll be throughout uh, the fall, starting uh, toward the end of September, uh, and you'll be getting both a letter and a full schedule of that once I get the outline uh, completed. It's also something I'm doing in conjunction with uh, issues, etc. And uh, if some of you are familiar with uh, Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option, um, they've uh, asked me at issues if um, uh, uh, we need a Lutheran response to this, which is in part what I'm intending to do as well. Uh, uh, St. Benedict, as he was called, uh, founded a monastery, the Benedictine Order, and so forth. And um, there's lots of things in Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, which are um, useful, um, other than the fact that it is not particularly Lutheran, uh, his understanding of sin, nor of the kingdom of God. Uh, or what our response should be, but there are many useful things in it. So part of this study on issues is going to be called the St. Peter option, <laughs> which is not a reference to me. It's a reference to the apostle. So I'm looking uh, forward to it, and you'll be partaking in it. So watch for that. It'll be maybe the third week or the fourth Sunday uh, in September. I'm not entirely sure which at this point. All right. Our verse for the week is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and uh, it is printed on the board. It's from the epistle for today. Uh, a familiar passage to all of us. Uh, some have mentioned to me this morning it was their confirmation verse. It is, um, it is uh, a vaccine against uh, works righteousness the virus of works righteousness, which is um, something that's um, indicative of the sinful flesh and perennially a problem. The only inoculation against it is the pure word of the gospel. So let us speak this together, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we have this verse quite often in the congregation at prayer because of its important importance. You know that grace 
is God's undeserved love and mercy in Christ Jesus, which is the fountain and source not only of our salvation, but of the faith that receives that salvation. So the first assertion, by grace you have been saved. So salvation is a gift of God's grace. It is not by works. But then this clause, through faith, and this clause, and that, that faith is not of yourselves. So as we've said quite often, I keep reminding you that not only is our salvation from sin, like the forgiveness of sins, deliverance from death and the devil, a gift of God's undeserved love in Christ, his grace, but the faith which receives that, that faith is also not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. So this phrase is specifically referring to faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Which, which means that not only is the forgiveness that Jesus won for us a gift of God's grace and not of works, which it is, so is the faith a miracle of God, a gift of his grace, not of ourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast like I thank God I chose Jesus, or something like that, that turns you in upon yourself. So uh, this means that both the gift of salvation and the faith to receive it depends upon God's grace. Let us speak it again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And our psalm for the week is 120. We completed Psalm 119 last week. I think uh, for now till the end of the 150 psalms, uh, we will be one a week, I believe. Am I right on that, Susan, or did I split one or two? Well, if I did, it's only one or two. She proofread the master schedule, so I can't remember. And neither can I. It's what happens when you... Get older, huh? So, but it'll take us into March, completing the, the 150 Psalms. And this Psalm prayer that I began Bible class with is based on Psalm 120. And um, as the uh, prayer for relief from bitter foes says at the top, I, I would just urge you to do this. You know, some ask me, I'm just so troubled by the times in which we're living in and so forth. Uh, this is nothing new. Uh, It may seem or feel new to you, but it's nothing new. The assault upon a Christian truth, the assault upon uh, society and culture and those things that in society and culture have been the product of Christian influence, which are now under assault, uh, is, is nothing new. Societies and cultures have ebbed and flowed, nations have risen and fallen down through the centuries. And um, one of the things that uh, the United States as a, as a nation was living from is a lot of memory of cultural things that are good things in terms of marriage, family, fidelity, so forth, kind of inherited, but now 
increasingly we are post-Christian, so the umbilical cord and the connection has been lost with the church. One of the things I'm going to argue for in the St. Peter option is not separation from society, but an increased study of God's word within the church, that you do not forsake the assembling together, which is the habit of some, but you gather for divine service and catechesis to be fortified, one, and two. And so I give you the congregation at prayer. I don't give you the congregation at prayer for you to take it home in your bulletin and toss it in the trash. I give it to you to use. Okay? Uh, the, the material from Jeremiah, for example, uh, just these last uh, two weeks now, and then again this week, it's um, stunning how timely that material is as it in so many ways is calling the southern kingdom of Judah to repentance uh, and then by extension a, a warning and a call to repentance for the church uh, today. So we will remain as Christians on a pilgrimage through this world, through this veil of tears. But it is a pilgrimage. In other words, this world is not the end. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth, the life that is to come is. But by faith in Christ now, we are to be of loving service to the neighbor, and especially the heathens and the pagans around us, okay, for their good, for their salvation. So anyway, we'll be talking more about that. But Psalm 120, a prayer from, for relief from bitter foes. Psalm 120 is a brief cry to the Lord for deliverance from those who oppose the faith of Christians with lies and deceit. Lying lips and a deceitful tongue is a reference to all false teachers who not only oppose the faith, but by their false doctrine lead people astray. So that would be false teachers within uh, government, society, culture, and churches. The psalmist asks the question, what shall be done to those who preach false doctrine? In the end the Lord will bring his judgment upon them. That's what Psalm 120 speaks, of, speaks about. In the psalm, you'll encounter the word Meshach. Meshach is outside the promised land in the southeast of Asia Minor. So the idea, you make a reference to Meshach, you know, you're outside the, the, the gates of the congregation. You know, you're not in the promised land you're outside in the land of exile and so forth. It signifies a foreign land which does not know the Lord. Sound familiar? Christians are on a pilgrimage through a world of unbelief and rejection of the truth. Then you'll encounter in the psalm, Kedar, the tents of Kedar were black. Black tents inhabited by Arabians who did not worship the Lord. Do you see, that's what you feel like today as Christians. You feel as if you are in the land of Meshech, surrounded by the tents of Kedar, these people whose belief system, I mean, have you ever found yourself in that situation? You say, I just can't even hardly relate to these people. They believe things and their lifestyle is a complete foreign thing compared to the Christian expression of the faith in my life, in my marriage, in my family, and so forth. Okay. 
So, uh, like Meshech, dwelling among the tents of Kedar, signifies how the Christian is in the world of unbelief and false doctrine, but not of the world. So that's why I'm urging you on to things like Bible class, uh, Didache is foundational, but we build on that foundation. That's what Sunday morning Bible class is all about and what we will, shall get in in earnest here in September. Under similar circumstances today, we call upon the Lord. Our lament parallels that of the, parallels that of the psalmist. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace which is a hatred of the gospel, the peace that only comes from Christ. I am for peace, the psalmist prays, but when I speak, they are for war. You experienced that in your life, Becca? This timely psalm is a prayer for the church today in the midst of a world which is increasingly hostile to the gospel. It is called a song of ascent because it was prayed after the burnt offering as the congregation entered into the presence of the Lord for the very help and deliverance for which the psalm prays. And uh, in 1 Peter, it emphasizes this pilgrim disp disposition. The Old Testament church was at her best when she was true to herself and worshiped in all the word, word, weird ways she worshiped. The church is at her best when she worships in all of the weird ways that are contrary to the culture around us. Okay? So you have visitors this morning saying, thank you very much. This is like I used to remember the church being. Or thank you, it's the first time, and I can't remember when, I've heard the word conscience used in a sermon. So... All right, that, these are the things that we need that fortify us. So do not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some. All right, uh, I'm going to leave the catechism to you because I'm going to go on, which is a confession this week, an obvious choice with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, God be merciful to me, a sinner, is fundamentally a confession of faith. Okay? Now let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 21. And in our survey of the Old Testament, this is lesson 32, which will take a couple of weeks to, uh, to get through. The, the point of this lesson is the, is the last in the sequence of Old Testament catechesis survey is to address itself by way of examples what the Old Testament after the monarchy of David and Solomon was like during the time of the divided kingdom. You had good kings, but you had mostly rotten kings. Uh, those kings in Israel to the north, Judah to the south, uh, were supposed to be like bishops of those churches, the Old Testament Northern Kingdom, the Old Testament, Southern Kingdom of Judah. Um, when we look at them purely as political figures, we miss part of the point of the call of the gospel to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? So David was a, a, a preacher, a, a prophet. He was a bishop. 
Uh, yeah, he was the king of the, southern, or of the United Kingdom, but you read the Psalms, this is chiefly about the Old Testament church and he as their, as their bishop, all right? So the two examples that we are going to look at before we see the fall of the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom fell in 722 BC to the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom was left. The southern kingdom fell to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 586, at which time the temple was destroyed. So we're going to look at two of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. One awful king for what he did, and one uh, wonderfully faithful king as much as sinners can be faithful at all. And those two are Manasseh and Josiah. Central thoughts. The reign of Manasseh was representative of all the unfaithfulness, idolatry, and false doctrine that had corrupted Israel throughout her history and which had continually made war against the Lord's truth and, con and those who confessed it. Notice how that central thought ties in well with Psalm 120. You know, when the psalmist says, I am for peace, the gospel of God's peace, but they are for war. You know, you, you observe this insanity where here the church is offering the love of God in Christ, the hope of salvation in Christ for all people without distinction, without partiality, holding up good things that are redeemed by Christ, like marriage and family and human sexuality, only to be hated for doing so. Okay. So we'll try to make some connections to see how the relevancy of the Old Testament church is to contemporary times. Second bullet, the reign of King Josiah, on the other hand, was representative of the faithfulness, pure worship, and true doctrine that were the Lord's gifts to Israel and Judah. In our Coffee Break Bible study of the Old Testament monarchy, um, I've been emphasizing and I continue to be struck by how central worship is to faithfulness. So right worship, that's called orthodoxy. Do you know that? Right praise, right glory. Um, so there is, that is central. It's not just that we as Christians learn a body of sterile doctrines, but our worship uh, bespeaks how the corporate body of Christ is in relationship with Christ and with one another by faith and love. And so that's why, you know, over the last 18 months, still the church had to gather together. Even when not all could be here, we had to gather, to gather together to receive the Lord's gifts and to support one another in faith and love and to take that mercy out uh, to others not able to be with us. All right, I will, I will go through central thoughts uh, more later uh, next week. Second Kings chapter 21, 
verses 1 through 18. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years. So how old is he when his reign ends? All right. His mother's name was Hephzibah, but she was not um, bringing her son up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So this pattern continues. The church is most threatened when the church, in the name of getting along, peace, peace, like we heard last week in the Old Testament from Jeremiah, where there is no peace. When the church accommodates the nations around her, the culture around her, the prevailing worldview. I want to pause here because it's difficult to avoid this. But it does have to be said. The church and conservative republicanism are not the same thing. The reason that's important is because it's the truth. Political parties uh, are not the same thing as the church. Sometimes, however, and this is what makes it difficult, there are common platforms, shall we say, For example, um, being pro-life and against abortion, being pro-life and against euthanasia, mercy killing, is Christian. It may also happen to be part of the platform of a particular political party, but that doesn't make, this is, we get into trouble with this all the time when we equate a political party with the church, as if, you know, the Methodists are Democrats, the Republicans are conservative Lutherans. That's really wrong, because uh, the church has her own set of confessions and beliefs that sometimes agree and sometimes uh, are contrary to those of a political party. But also, it gives the impression, if we think it is aligned completely with the political party, that the kingdom of God on earth is about electing the right man president. And it's not. Which doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, work to be engaged in society and culture and even in the government to elect good, honest, upright people who share our values to try to have them enacted into law. But we do that not because we think we're going to establish the kingdom of God on earth, but we do that because it is good for society and in love for the neighbor. Okay? What we have to come to terms with, which we're finding difficult as American conservative Christians, is the place of Christian persecution 
in promoting the kingdom of God. This faith, which is not of ourselves, but is the gift of God, has not depended upon the prosperity of a nation or the horrible fragmentation and destruction of a nation. It's dependent upon the word and spirit of God. One of the things that's a threat to our faith, according to the sower and the seed, the parable of the sower and the seed, is not only how persecution attacks the faith, but how the cares and the riches of this world attach, attack the faith. So being left with the choice, do I remain true to what I believe, or do I lose my job? Do I may remain true to what I believe, or do I forfeit my possessions? Or do I have my possessions severely threatened? That becomes a very real situation and possibility, more so now for Christians in the United States than 50 years ago. And it's going to get worse, which I'm not telling you that. The point is not to you know, frighten you or to be sensational about it. It just happens to be the truth. To warn you of things to come. And the Apostle Peter does that greatly in his first and second epistles, which we will be studying throughout the fall and into the winter. Okay? So that's why we need uh, to be strengthened by the Word of God and fortified against those things and be given the only thing that can equip us to navigate these difficult waters, and that is the Word of God. All right, so. Uh, a couple of things to mention from the digression here from Manasseh. But the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before all Israel. Israel was called to be a pilgrim people. It's interesting how much of the time she wasn't even in the promised land. Abraham is called to faith the land that he lived in was pretty nice. It was the Fertile Crescent, you know, Mesopotamia, uh, the, the gardens of uh, Iraq before the bombing of Baghdad, I guess, you know. Okay, so he, he lived in some pretty lush areas, and he was called out of that to the land of promise, which was down in, in Canaan, and parts of the Jordan uh, River Valley were very beautiful and nice. But then when he, he gets there, do you know what's there? Famine. So he's called to leave prosperity and lushness. He was a rich man, like the rich man in Lazarus. And then he comes to the land of Canaan, and it's a famine. And so he's got to move from, pass through the land to Egypt, the land of Ham. If you've been praying the Psalms this week, they're mentioned, the land of Ham. And, and Abraham's there for a while. He gets to go back, but eventually, not many years after that, through Joseph, Jacob ends up with all of the sons in Egypt for 400 years. And then they come out of the promised land, uh, out of Egypt at the Passover, and they're finally delivered. But they're walking around in the most arid 
godforsaken, I put that in quotes, it wasn't forsaken, but it seemed like it was, wilderness. Go out into Saudi Arabia and see where, uh, on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba, in that wilderness, what it was like. It makes Texas look like um, the Garden of Eden. The dry parts, I mean, okay? I mean, it was arid. Get a quarter of an inch of rainfall a year or some ridiculous thing like that. No wonder they cry, we don't have any water. You know, when we, we see that, we complain about them. Oh, just, just what ungrateful, unbelieving people. You put yourself in that situation and then you realize, ah, what am I going to do? There's no food, there's no water. And here we are, a million people in the wilderness. Okay, where are we going to find food? So it just, anyway, that was on the, on the basic point. It's amazing how little time they spend in the promised land. And then they finally get there, and they're established after, uh, during the period of the judges, but they compromise throughout all that. Joshua's reign ends without them fully conquering the promised land, as they were told to do. Unfaithfulness to the Lord's word never ends well. Never. Never. Find me a place. I challenge you to do that. Never ends well. Uh, but when they're in their heyday, like the reign of David, peace, Solomon's empire is ended, what does Solomon do? The so-called wisest man that ever lived brings in the belief systems of the nations around them, and he loved many foreign women. Be careful. Love the woman of your youth, who's a good Missouri Synod Lutheran. Got that, Jody? Okay. And forsake the foreign women. You know, and so they brought in all of that stuff and the decay. But what's interesting about that is they were wealthy, they were rich. They were prop prosperous. Remember when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon? She came, she said, you know, she'd heard all of the news. It was on CNN all the time about Solomon's kingdom. Man, I got to see this for myself. I got to see if this is really true. And do you remember the story? She went to Solomon and she was wined and dined by him. And she said, I wasn't told the half of it. It is twice as wealthy and great and prosperous and amazing as I even was told it was. Okay, uh, But that didn't serve him very well. So I submit to you the wealth and the prosperity of the United States uh, is a great source of temptation for the church and for Christians. John? Susan? That's from the great litany. Say it again. In the hour of, no, but um, in all time of our tribulation, in all time of our prosperity, in the hour of death and in the day of judgment. Yeah. So again, I don't, uh, I'm not telling you these things, again, to frighten you, but let us batten down the hatches with the word of God. And the other thing that's associated with uh, Peter and the psalmists and the New Testament is singing and joy in the face of persecution and sorrow and difficulty. 
Okay. So, verse 3. What did Manasseh do? He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, Hezekiah was a good king, his father had destroyed. Those high places were of two kinds. They were places for unauthorized um, worship of the Lord, uh, not in the manner and the way that he had prescribed. Maybe it would be like celebrating the Lord's Supper with Fritos and apple juice. You know, the Gearox bring in, you know, we've got all these apples. and So Keith says, can't we just use apple juice for the Lord's Supper? We'll even ferment it, and it'll be apple wine. You know. Yeah? Also, having church, like, outside in a park or... Well, I, 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 no, I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there, okay? Okay. Because there's a difference between the administration of the sacrament according to Christ's institution yes. right. and uh, the institution of certain things in the Old Testament. Uh, I don't wear the priestly garments of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it must be here in this place, in Jerusalem at this place, at this altar of burnt sacrifice. Okay, okay. so that's... You don't extrapolate. Now, there may be, you may ask yourself the question, what is the wisdom of worshiping outside when it, it detracts from the ability to sing? But it's not of the same order. Okay. So he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. Uh, so that is one kind. The second kind of the high places is simply the worship of, of idols. Philip. Yeah. But Hezekiah actually did. Yes. And so did Josiah. Yeah, so did Josiah. Josiah's cleanup effort was even greater. Okay. All right, so he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah's father destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal. Now, Baal is the male god of, uh, of war. He is also associated with the paganism of the day. So if you want to, you know, um, reverse climate change, then you have to worship Baal and appeal to Baal in the right way. Okay? So paganism is where you're worshiping the creation, even though it's not called, like today it's not called the creation, of course. But it's the worship of that, and so the idea that you can manipulate uh, the creation. We're going to talk about uh, climate change versus the curse of the fall uh, as one of our topics under this to everyone an answer fall session. So he rebuilt the high places. He raised up altars for Baal and made wooden, a wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Ahab was, uh, had been king of the north. Uh, he is dead at this time, but uh, his wife was Jezebel from Phoenicia. And it was not only the worship of Baal that came in, but also the Asherah poles. I found it fascinating. These 
uh, the, this Asher is a female goddess, and there were these Asherah poles. Uh, uh, they, they, well, they did kind of a pole dancing. Asherah was the goddess of sex and fertility and human unbridled sensual pleasure. Uh, and that's what tempted uh, Solomon. Unbridled pleasure. Um, God has given the gift of pleasure, but it needs to be ordered according to God's uh, pattern and design. And then the host of heaven, this is astrology. You know, the worshiping of the stars and the planets. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. Now, we cannot do anything about, or very little about, chapels in hospitals that appeal to every deity and religion under the sun. But we have control of this space. So some may be troubled by the fact although I haven't heard it in a long time. We do have a flag that we put up outside for the academy, and it's in the academy entryway. But you'll notice there is no flag here in the nave, even though it was a very popular thing to do in churches. Part of the reason there is not is going back to the assertion we made at the beginning about the <coughs> kingdom of God and a political party or the kingdom of God and the United States of America are not to be equated. So uh, there are no nationalistic flags or symbols here. You will recall that, well, maybe you won't recall this. Some of you are old enough will recall this. The um, Nazi swastika was put in churches during the Third Reich. And you had to put that swastika out there. I put that in quotes. You had to do it or suffer the consequences for not doing it. And, of course, one of the diff problems was how many churchmen caved to the political pressure. I also find it interesting that in Nazi fascism, fascism during that reign and then subsequent to that with, um, uh, after the fall of the Third Reich, and the Iron Curtain, how during the Stalinistic regime, the amount of tattletailing that went on. You know what I mean? Like um, you tattle on your neighbor because the Legros are harboring Jews, or you tattle on your neighbor because they're having Bible study in their home <clears throat> under the communist regime that is being forbidden. So you got people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, if you're familiar with that name, who, because of being outspoken against communism, which is an evil, just like Nazi fascism was an evil, uh, he was sent to the Gulag Archipelago, which is in a very uh, the garden spot of Russia, as you know, Siberia. Not that, not that, not that 
citizens of the United States would ever tattle on one another because you are not towing the proper party line, whatever that happens to be. See, it, it's not only coming, but it's like you're right on the threshold of it. Okay, so he built altars in the house of the Lord. Now this is horrid, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. So the, Lord, the uh, house of the Lord became syncretistic. Syncretistic is where you blend religions together with the Orthodox faith and worship. He built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So they're having astrology worship there. Um, uh, Manasseh would have absolutely altered if he, if he didn't have, they, they, they were so not using the scriptures, they didn't even have the Torah. It, it's fallen out of use. But he would have changed the pronouns, Kent, in the Bible. Seriously. He would have gotten rid of all gender specificity. He would have accommodated the transgender uh, movement uh, in the name of um, inclusion. Also, he made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. This making his son pass through the fire, this is um, uh, child sacrifice, soothsaying and witchcraft, consulting the dead, which is really, you can't contact the dead. If you try to, you will contact someone, but it'll be demonic power. So he did much evil in the sight of the Lord. And part of Manasseh's uh, governing principle were the covetous desires of his glands. He was ear to, ears to hear, let him hear. He even set a carved image of Asherah. There's that goddess of sex and fertility that he had made in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So can you imagine setting up symbols of idolatrous anti-Christian worship here next to the beautiful altar that Al Gable had built? Okay, that's what was going on. But in the name of inclusion, in the name of love, in the name of the gospel of peace. Christine? Playing for a youth Lutheran funeral, yep. And the guest pastor from a Lutheran church in Madison came, and it was the transgender. And I... The, the, I, the pastor was transgender? Is yeah. That, okay. uh, I felt like the air had been sucked out of my body, and I, I could hardly be there. Well, now, this phenomenon, when Christine says that this transgender pastor of this Lutheran church at which she's playing for the funeral, when this realization comes forward, she feels as if the air was sucked out of her body. This is actually a spiritual phenomenon that happens because this is, this is satanic. 
it, it, it's not just benign falsehood. It is malevolent evil. And it is satanic. Yeah, I, I've had those experiences. And being in places, this is where uh, uh, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy that all things are sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Sanctified, made holy, set apart for the Lord's work and for the Lord's presence. There is a flip side to that. All things are defiled by false doctrine and the invocation of what St. Paul calls in 1 Corinthians demons. So actually, when churches accommodate the transgenderism, the gender dysphoria, uh, et cetera, et cetera, it is a form of invoking of the demonic. So it, it read scripture. Well, it's a great example of what uh, Manasseh was doing. Oh, we'll have scripture read right alongside of this false practice. Yeah. What pronoun did he use of himself? Oh, he referenced Peter. So, <laughs> but was he an it, uh, a they? It was formerly Rose. Oh. His name was formerly Rose. And it started to grow a little wispy beard. So oh, it was horrible. It was just horrible. Okay. So, so uh, what I'm saying is Satan's... Uh, presence or demonic presence can actually be in a place. I was going to say, Satan is great at using that word. Correct. And this, is, this is where pure preaching and teaching is important, coupled with the singing of evangelical, in the right sense of that term, hymns. You, I mean, we all believe in one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and so forth. To sing something like that makes the location and place one of the safest places spiritually on earth. Now, I want you to think about that. The, the pure preaching and teaching and confession of the truth and the singing of the Orthodox liturgy and hymnody makes of the worship space the safest spiritual place on earth. It is what Luther is talking about when he's talking about a mighty fortress. Okay? Pastor Gelbach. Yeah, did God really say you're a man? I mean, everything, I mean, a whole society, the, the question is, is, did God really say? And it's like, yes, he did. And, and it's a challenge I'm dealing with in my secular world. Okay, so I'm, I'm glad you told me that story because it fits so spot on well with Manasseh and the corruption and the abominations that were brought into the southern kingdom of Judah, the church of Judah and the church's worship life. It's not then hard to understand why in 586 the Lord has said, you know, enough, and Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroy that place because it had been so grossly defiled. Okay, Kent? No, it's doctrine of demons, because yeah, it, it overturns the created order. 
And this is where, you, you've heard about the story, and we're, we'll pick this up next week, about you put the frog in the room temperature pan, and then you gradually turn up the heat. You see, um, because the heat has been gradually but progressively turned up through the sexual revolution and so forth to the present, and things have been accepted, what is being accepted as mainstream and normal today would have been absolutely, totally rejected even 20 years ago, or 30 or 40 years ago, okay? So how much things have gained ascendancy has nothing to do with whether or not those things are true and right, okay? So we shall hear uh, more about Manasseh next week and um, what, what transpired in his life and what he did for Judah. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.